On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the unity uh, of the Bible. At least tonight, we're talking about the unity of the Bible. We've been spending the last several weeks talking about the doctrine of Scripture. What is it that we believe about the Bible? Uh, We're covering a number of different topics as we think about the doctrine of Scripture. We've talked about inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, or clarity, authority, necessity, sufficiency, power. Tonight, unity. Uh, We should have been talking about the beauty of Scripture on this side of spring break, but we're going to have to pick it up because of a snow day on the other side of spring break. And uh, I thought about cutting that one off and pressing on with what we were going to talk about on the other side of spring break, but it's a good one. So we're going to just keep it, and we'll combine some other things uh, on the other side of spring break. After spring break, after we talk about the beauty of Scripture, We're going to talk about hermeneutics, which is interpreting the Bible. How do you make sense of it? What are the rules? How do you approach the Bible? Uh, And I'm excited about that study. I think it's going to be helpful uh, for us. Tonight, as we think about the unity of the Bible, this is a topic that really is the flip side of something we've already talked about. We talked about inerrancy. When we talked about inerrancy, we said the Bible does not have any mistakes and it does not have any contradictions. That's a negative statement about the Bible. That's what the Bible is not. It is not a book that errs or that has mistakes or that has contradictions. It's one thing to make a negative statement about the Bible. Tonight we're making a positive statement about the Bible. Not only does it not contradict itself, not only does it not have mistakes, but it is actually a unified whole. It is a unified book. And so we're going to start with a a verse from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 24. I'm reading out of the ESV, says, Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. That's out of the English Standard Version. Now, I don't like the message uh, paraphrase a whole lot. It's, it's not really a translation of the Bible. It's more of a paraphrase of the Bible. It's a rephrasing what the Bible actually says. It has a lot of interpretation baked into the text of the message. But I like how Peterson uh, has communicated the idea of devious talk when he says, don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You've heard that expression, somebody who talks out of both sides of their mouth. In fact, when I use that expression and refer to it, you're probably picturing a real person, somebody that you know. Hopefully, it's not the person sitting right next to you. Hopefully, it's not a close family member. Hopefully, it's not an employer or an employee. But you probably know somebody, and you're probably thinking about somebody. Oh, I know somebody who talks out of both sides of their mouth. They say one thing to one person, then they say another thing to another person, and we have some very simple direct words for people like that. They're liars. They're deceitful, right? Or, as the scripture says, we'll put Proverbs up one more time, they have crooked speech and devious talk. They talk out of both sides of their mouth. Here's the reality. In the year 2021, it is not new to find Many, many people who think the Bible is full of devious talk and crooked speech. There's a lot of folks that think the Bible talks out of both sides of its mouth. They do not think that this book has a unified 
message. They, in fact, think that it's full of contradictions and mistakes and errors. There are people who will say, look, I, I read some passages of the Bible, and they say to me that God is patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I read other stories in the Bible, and it looks like God's a hothead. So which one is it? Pick. Pick one or the other. How can it be both? There's people who will say things like, I, I look at this part of the Bible, and it sounds like a person is saved this way. Then I read this part of the Bible, and it sounds like a person is saved that way. So which is it? If it's unified, it can't be filled with contradictions. There are people who say, I, I read this story in this place in the Bible, and it has this set of facts, and I read the same story in this part of the Bible, and there's a different set of facts. How can these things line up, and how can they be unified as a whole? You may or may not realize this. There is an entire industry of, and I'm using air quotes, scholarship built around the idea that the Bible is not a unified whole as a book. In fact, I met a pastor just this last week. He is a pastor in West Texas. He pastors in a town roughly the size of ours, a town in West Texas that has three universities. And he was talking to me about the professors at these universities, many of whom he knows personally. Professors who make their living denying that this book is a unified whole. They make their living trying to convince people that Moses certainly did not write the first five books of the Bible. It's just a mishmash of all sorts of different sources crammed together. We certainly know, these scholars would tell you, that Isaiah did not write Isaiah. It's probably written by two guys or maybe three guys, and then they mash the whole book together, and the first part doesn't even match the second part, and it probably doesn't even match the third part. It's all just a jumbled bunch of confusion and contradiction. People who make their living, their scholarly living saying there is a God of the Old Testament, there is a God of the New Testament, and they are not the same God. God is one way in the old, he's another way in the new, and these two things are in contradiction. Scholars who would say clearly James and Paul disagree about salvation. Clearly James says here is how you can be saved. And Paul says, no, here is how you can be saved. And they both can't be right. And it's a contradiction. This book does not present a unified whole. Erwin Lutzer puts his finger on the right question when he says this. He says, the Bible is really a library of 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period that spans 1,500 years if one of the most important characteristics of truth is consistency, or you could say unity, we must ask, does the Bible present a unified storyline? I'll just give you a spoiler alert. I think the answer is yes. But we're going to work through that tonight. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about itself. And we're going to talk about what we believe about the unity of the Bible. One disclaimer. When we talk about the power of Scripture... It's relatively easy to flip through a bunch of passages that talk about how the Bible is powerful, right? I can find those passages pretty easily. When we talk about inspiration, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not hard for us to flip through the scriptures and find the passages that talk about the Bible being inspired by God. The claim that we're making tonight is much more difficult to prove 
just flipping to a verse here or a verse there. In fact, it's impossible. Because what I'm saying to you is that the whole of this book, the entirety of this book presents a unified message. So if I was really going to prove that to you, we would need to start in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation and take really good notes as we go, and then we'd get to the end and we'd say, okay, it all hangs together. There's a unity to this book. We have 35 minutes until we dismiss. So we're not going to do that, and we're going to move quick, but I'm just going to give you some things to think about. I'm going to give you some scriptures to consider and some to look at on your own as we think about the unity of the Bible. So number one, what does the Bible say about its unity? Look with me at the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord says to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first promise of the gospel. God said, I'm going to send somebody to crush the head of the serpent. And listen, from this moment on, Genesis 3.15 on, God's people were waiting for that person to come. And every time God's people welcomed a new baby boy into the world, they thought, maybe this is him. Look at Genesis 4.1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of a Lord. You can dig into the Hebrew of that verse. What Eve thought is, this is the one. God said he would send someone, and we've got one. He's here. I've gotten him. He showed up. Now, if you know the story of Cain, you know he was not the one. But she was hopeful that he was the one. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. It's the same word you find back in Genesis 3.15. Another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And again, there's the idea, well, maybe he's the one. They're waiting, they're looking, they're hoping that God would send someone. And that hope continued to build. Take your Bible and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the Lord speaking through Nathan to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring... We've heard that word before. Your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. They're still waiting for someone. The picture begins to fill in and not only are they now waiting for someone who's going to crush the serpent's head, but now they're waiting for someone who's going to be a king. He's going to have a kingdom established in the line of David. You see the same idea continued in the book of Isaiah. If you flip over to the major prophet Isaiah, you look at Isaiah chapter 7. We're waiting for someone to be born, an offspring of the woman, a king who would rule. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's going to be a baby born, and they're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you keep reading in chapter 9, this, this son is described. He's defined in verse Six And Isaiah 9 says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and 
the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That connects you back to 2 Samuel 7, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're looking. They're waiting for the one to come to crush the serpent's head. They're waiting for the one to sit on David's throne. They're waiting for the one who would be Emmanuel, God with us. And finally he comes. And look how the Bible ends. It's talking about Jesus who has died. He's been resurrected. He's ascended to heaven. We're reading about his return in Revelation 22. He's been described as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He has crushed the serpent and thrown him into the pit. And the Bible ends with this, Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. And there's a prayer, come Lord Jesus. The opening chapters of the Bible say God's going to send somebody. Wait for him. Look for him. He's going to fix it. He's going to crush the serpent. That promise is filled in, and it's continued all the way through the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and it's ultimately fulfilled in his second coming. And the Bible itself ends saying, we're looking for him. We're waiting for him. We're praying for him. And when he comes back, he's going to be the king, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. That's a biblical theme that runs all the way from the first chapters of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. We're not chasing rabbits on random stories all the way through the Bible. We're telling one story about God keeping his promise to send somebody. Consider Genesis chapter 1. Thinking about the unity of the Bible and the Trinity. Genesis 1. In a few weeks we'll talk about progressive revelation, but just think about this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... God, there's one God, he creates the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. It's clear when you read the Genesis story that there's one God. One God. And yet you get to the New Testament, and I've just given you one passage that speaks to the the reality of the Trinity. If you look at Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular name, one name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Correct grammar would be in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he says it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one of many passages that speaks to the reality of the Trinity. And you go back to Genesis 1 and you say, but I thought there was just one God. Now he's talking about three persons that are God. And here's what you find. It fits perfectly with the book of Genesis. There's absolutely no contradiction. That word God in Genesis 1.1 is a plural noun. Elohim. One God God, Elohim, and it's a plural word. Oh, that fits, right? Because there's one God and there's three persons. And when God says, let us make man in our image, you understand he's not talking to the cows. He's not talking to the redwoods. 
is the Trinity having a conversation. We're going to make human beings in our, my, our image. It's the one true God. And there's no contradiction here. There's development. There's things that become more clear as God continues to reveal himself to human beings. But there is no contradiction. There's a unified story. We've talked a lot about Genesis. Just consider Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. You can go back and and read these on your own. Genesis begins with a garden, a tree, water, and life. There's a garden, there's water, there's a tree, there's life. How does the Bible end? Not with a garden, but with a city. The garden has been developed into a city, and in that city, there is a river, it's the water of life, and there's a tree. It's the tree of life. So all those themes you saw in the beginning are right there in the end, and it's the Bible's way of saying to you, this is one story. It's about what God created and what was ruined by sin and what God is restoring and redeeming through Jesus Christ. It's a unified whole. Go to the book of Numbers. Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And the part I want you to pay attention is to is Moses telling the people that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you want to believe that the God of the Old Testament is only a hothead, you've got to cut that verse out of your Bible. And you've got to cut all of Numbers out because God is really slow to anger in the book of Numbers. He's really patient with some really ornery people. So you just got to rip all that out because it doesn't fit that narrative. So you can believe that narrative or you can just believe what the Bible says and you can say, you know what, he is He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The New Testament says the same thing. You can look at what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, God is patient with you, and his patience is intended to lead you to repentance. It's the same God. It's not a different God. It's not a different deity. And guess what? Sometimes he bursts out in judgment against people. He holds some people who receive special experiences of his presence. He holds them to a higher standard. He did that to Nadab and Abihu in the book of Numbers. They ate with the Lord on the mountain, then they blatantly disobeyed, and the Lord burst out and he killed them. Guess what? He did the exact same kind of stuff in the New Testament to Ananias and Sapphira who were witnessing miracles and signs at the hands of the apostles and lied to the Holy Spirit and to Peter in church, and the Lord burst out and he killed them. It's not two different deities. It's the same deity. It's the same God in the Old Testament. His character has not changed. It's a unified story about God. Mercifully, we will not look at Leviticus. But on your own, you could read through the book of Leviticus. In fact, in your Bible reading plan, some of you might be getting dangerously close to Leviticus. Guess what? It's a tough sledding. I mean, it's rough to get through it. But if you get through it and then you read the book of Hebrews, light bulbs start going off. And you're like, oh, I finally understand some of Hebrews because I read Leviticus. All these themes about how God is going to save his people and the sacrifice that they need for their sin are all fulfilled in the New Testament. It's not two irrelevant, completely contradictory ideas, but it's a unified story. And you see fulfillment. Look at one, one more passage, Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 44. 
Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus got all that, his death, his resurrection, the great commission, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins. He got it all from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. He walked them through that book. It has three divisions in Jewish thought, the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, it's the writings. All three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures, he walks them through that, and he says, it was all talking about me. It was all pointing to me. It all had to be fulfilled. This is not, that's the old deal. Here's the new, and it's completely separate. He takes the old, and he says, the old is really about the new, and the new is really about the old. And if you don't understand the New Testament, you're going to have a really hard time making sense of the Old Testament. And if you don't study the Old Testament, you're going to have a really hard time making sense of anything in the New Testament. These two books go together, and they present a unified whole. So, specifically, what do we mean when we talk about the unity of the Bible? Let me give you some thoughts. Number one, the Bible's unified in authorship. Authorship. This is true because the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors, and we talked about inspiration a few weeks ago. James Boyce says, the scriptures have but one author, and that is God. The Bible's authorship leads to two principles of interpretation. This is looking ahead to the other side of spring break, the principle of unity and the principle of non-contradiction. Now look, James Montgomery Boyce is a smart guy. He knows that Paul wrote letters, and Moses wrote the Old Testament, and David wrote the Psalms, and he knows all that. But he's making a point that there's a unity to this book because behind the human authors, there is one author. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired this book. When we talked about inspiration, one of the things I told you is it wasn't dictation. It wasn't always just like the Holy Spirit beaming down a sort of a radio tractor beam into people's heads and he just overtook them and uh, ruled them like an automaton or a machine and they wrote down something. The Holy Spirit worked through the personalities of these authors. He he worked through the experiences and the education of these authors. They wrote differently. Their sentence structure is different. Their vocabulary is different. And it's a remarkable thing to think about the men who wrote this book and how different those men were. Let me just mention a few of them. Moses. Moses. You think of Moses as the Exodus guy and the the shepherd guy. Have you ever thought about the fact that Moses grew up royalty and received what we would consider to be like an Ivy League education? The best schools, the best teachers, the best instruction, the best learning. He grew up with all of that growing up in Pharaoh's house. Have you ever thought about Amos? The minor prophet Amos, he was a tree farmer. He didn't grow up in the royal family of Egypt and get to go to all those fancy schools and get all edumacated. He just says in the opening of his book, I'm just a farmer. That's it. You ever thought about Luke? He wasn't even Jewish. He was a Gentile, trained to be a physician, a physician, And from the introduction to the books that he wrote, 
He's a world-class historian. He's a highly literate man. He's very, very educated. What about Peter and Andrew, James and John? Fishermen. Businessmen. They owned a fishing business. They had a small business. They ran and they took care of their families. They were just practical men. We know from later in the New Testament that they weren't formally educated, but they were street smart educated. You got all these guys. They lived over hundreds of years. They lived and grew up on different continents. They spoke different languages and wrote in different languages. They had different cultural experiences. Some of them grew up wealthy and rich. Some of them grew up in slavery. Some of them got to go to formal school of some kind. Some of them did not at all. Hundreds of years apart, and you look at this book, Genesis to Revelation, and it's one unified story. All those personalities over all that time. Can you imagine a medical anthology, a book of medicine, written by authors who lived in ancient Egypt all the way up to the first century having one approach to medicine. Can you imagine a legal anthology written by the greatest legal minds from ancient Rome up into modern Western democracies, all presenting the same sort of legal theory and philosophy? It's unthinkable. And yet in this book, a book about God and a book about human beings, there is a unity in authorship. Secondly, there's unity in theme. The Bible is unified in theme. From Genesis to Revelation, this book talks about a God, the one true God, and it describes him in a lot of different ways, but above all else, he's a holy God. And this book describes human beings as sinful people. From Genesis 3 onward until our glorification. We're sinful, fallen people. And this book, beginning in Genesis, going all the way to Revelation, describes the relationship between God and his people as one that is dependent on his grace and one in which we are called to have faith in him. That's consistent from the Old Testament all the way through the New. This theme is consistent and the Bible is unified in this theme. Next, it's unified in structure. Unified in structure. Here's the point here. The Bible is not like 50 middle school boys all given a trumpet and told to play one note as loud as they can all at the same time. You have a sound in your head of what that would be like, right? Obnoxiously obnoxious, the epitome of middle school boy just ringing in your ears. The Bible is not like that. The Bible more, when you think about its structure, is more like going to the symphony or the orchestra. There's lots of different musicians, lots of different backgrounds. They play lots of different instruments. They don't all play at the same time. Some of them play more than others. Some of them just have the cymbal and every now and then they hit it. That's it. Just hit it. And some of them play all the way through the music. Some of them play very loudly and some of them don't play very loudly. But you take all of them together and they all play their part and you get one unified, beautiful piece of music. That's what the Bible's like. Some of these books are really 
short, and some of these books are really long. Some of these books are very confrontational and direct, and some of them are not as confrontational or direct. But you take them together, old and new, all the different genres, and there's a unity in the structure. Next, the Bible's unified in doctrine. Unified in doctrine. There's a great article on the Answers in Genesis website. If you just Google Answers in Genesis, the unity of the Bible, you'll find this article. And I just took some screenshots of a few examples of how the Bible is unified in doctrine. And we could just give dozens of these examples. But I just want you to see the Old Testament, Jesus, and the apostles, they all agree on these core issues. Consider some of these. The creation. Moses says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John agrees. By God, all things were made. Jesus agreed. At the beginning, God made them male and female. That's the Old Testament, the apostles, and Jesus. They all agree about creation. God did it in the beginning. Look at this next one, the flood. Moses talks about the flood. Noah went into the ark. The waters increased greatly. All flesh died. Peter says the same thing. Jesus says the same thing. They're all telling the same story. They don't have three different versions of what happened. They all describe it in their own words, but it's the same story that they're talking about. Next, the resurrection. The Old Testament. King David said, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Paul says, quoting King David, Christ was buried, and again, he rose on the third day. And then Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. They all agreed that there would be a resurrection of the Messiah. They also all agreed that there would be a new creation in the end. Isaiah the prophet says, behold, I'll make a new heavens and a new earth. And you say, oh, I thought that was Revelation. Well, it is, but it was first in Isaiah. John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. There's consistency in doctrine from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Next, the Bible's unified in rationality. This is a helpful point. John MacArthur makes it in his book, Final Word. His point here is that there's not secret messages that you need to decode out of the Bible. You just read it, and you use your brain, and you figure out what it means, and it's really not that complicated. Okay, That's a great piece of interpretive advice. This is what he says. The objective revelation of God in Scripture is meant to be understood by normal reasoning. It's logical, non-contradictory, and it's clear. There are no errors or lies or unsound principles. There are, in reality, no logical contradictions, though to us there may appear to be inconsistencies or paradoxes due to our human limitations. Ultimately, there's no contradictions in Scripture, no fantasies, no absurdities, no inconsistencies, and no myths. The Word of God contains the actual history of real people told in normal language. Scripture is to be understood in the same way we would seek to understand anything by the process of reason. It's just a simple plea. Use your brain. Right? Don't, don't ask God to give you some kind of crazy vision and decode something. Don't ask for God to send you some secret message so you can make sense of it. Just use your brain. Read it. Think about it like you would any other document. It's unified in rationality. Lastly, Bible's unified in references. Unified in references. The point here is that the Bible refers to itself over and over and over thousands and tens of thousands of times. I'll just show you one infographic, okay? You see the little white bars down at the bottom in the black? 
every one of those white bars down at the bottom is a chapter in the Bible. So you see the long one right there in the middle? Psalm 119, okay? The longer the bar, the longer the chapter. So there's a line at the bottom for every chapter in the Bible. And then this infographic shows, you could come up with more, but it shows about 60,000 cross-references in the Bible. And the further apart they are, meaning Genesis and Revelation, the line goes way up top and it's kind of that yellow color. But the closer they are, like if Genesis is referred to in Exodus some way, it's a shorter line down at the bottom. It's kind of that purple, bluish color, and it's a shorter arc. And it's just showing you, look, this book, like, it talks about itself over and over and over and over again. And all of those references... And all of these quotations, and all of these allusions, no contradictions, but one completely unified story. How do we apply this doctrine to our lives? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, this is dipping into hermeneutics, but it's important. We should approach the Bible with a hermeneutic of faith rather than a hermeneutic of suspicion. You can approach the Bible in one of two ways. You can be a skeptic, and you can go in looking for mistakes and contradictions. You'll probably find them, at least as you perceive them. Or you can go in with a little bit of humility, and you can approach the Bible with a hermeneutic of faith, and you can say, okay, there's a couple of things here. I'm not sure how they fit together, but rather than assume that the problem is with the Bible, I'm going to assume the problem's with me. I need to keep reading. I need to put more pieces together. I need to think through this. I need, to, I need to consult commentaries. I need to consult Bible experts. I need to look for some answers. Maybe our default position shouldn't be going in looking for problems and mistakes. Rather, we come in with a hermeneutic of faith saying, I'm going to trust it. I'm going to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt in its unity. Secondly, Please, please focus on major themes in the overarching storyline of the Bible. There's an awful lot of people in the Bible Belt who think that the definition of a deep Bible study is trying to find the most obscure passage of Scripture and then build some wacky idea on it. Like, I'm going to find the weirdest verse and then I'm going to talk about some wacky thing. There's an awful lot of people that think a, a deep Bible study is decoding something secret and hidden in the Bible that no one has ever seen before. If you find something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before, forget it. People have been studying the Bible for 2,000 years as a unified whole. They have found an awful lot of stuff. Right, That is not the definition of a deep Bible study. A deep Bible study is one that connects the individual pieces of the Bible to the unified whole of the Bible. Right? It's not all about focusing on this individual tree, but it's thinking about how this tree fits into the forest. That's a, the way that we ought to approach the Scripture. One more thought. We should be humble when we come across parts of the Bible that seem to contradict and there's some challenges. There's some parts and some details and some things that if you read closely, you'll come across and you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
what is this and what is this? And my plea to you is just to be humble in those moments. I like the advice of Wayne Grudem. He says, look, there's really no new problems in Scripture. The Bible in its entirety is over 1,900 years old. The alleged, quote, problem texts have been there all along, yet throughout the history of the church, there's been a firm belief in the inerrancy of the Scripture. Moreover, for these hundreds of years, highly competent Bible scholars have read and studied those problem texts and still have found no difficulty in holding to inerrancy. Here's what ought to be a little bit humbling. When you read and you start to find some of these things in the Bible and you think, ah, I got one, got a mistake, got a contradiction, I got something that doesn't match up or line up. I'd be willing to bet you lunch that we could do a little research between like three guys. Let's just say St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and John Calvin. I bet you those guys who lived 500, 1,000, and 1,500 years ago have answered your question thousands of years ago. It's not to say it's a bad question. It's not to say you shouldn't seek an answer if you want to try to figure out how the Bible holds together. It's just to say there is an answer. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with the way that we're thinking about the Bible, the way that we're interpreting the Bible. All of these alleged problem texts, contradictions, and mistakes, they've been answered. They've been addressed. And people who have studied this book way more than you, way more than me, have come away saying it's unified. It all holds together. It all hangs together. It's true. It's without error, and it's unified in its message. That ought to be something we give thanks for, something that we rejoice over, is that when we come to God's revelation of himself in Scripture, we don't have to be fearful that he's going to be one way on our Tuesday devotion and another way on our Friday devotion. Well, hope you had the right Bible reading passage this morning for whatever you're going to face today. It's the same God. It's the same story. It's the same gospel from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We ought to be thankful for that. So let's end with a word of thanks.